Volume One, Section Two of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell. Volume One, Section Two. Chapter Two. For a right understanding of the life of my dear friend, Charlotte Bronte, it appears to me more necessary in her case than in most others, that the reader should be made acquainted with the peculiar forms of population and society amidst which her earliest years were passed, and from which both her own and her sister's first impressions on human life must have been received. I shall endeavour, therefore, before proceeding further with my work, to present some idea of the character of the people of Haworth, and the surrounding districts. Even an inhabitant of the neighbouring county of Lancaster is struck by the peculiar force of character which the Yorkshire men display. This makes them interesting as a race, while, at the same time, as individuals, the remarkable degree of self-sufficiency they possess gives them an air of independence rather apt to repel a stranger. I use this expression, self-sufficiency, in the largest sense. Conscious of the strong sagacity and the dogged power of will, which seem almost the birthright of the natives of the West Riding, each man relies upon himself, and seeks no help at the hands of his neighbor. From rarely requiring the assistance of others, he comes to doubt the power of bestowing it. From the general success of his efforts, he grows to depend upon them and to overesteem his own energy and power. He belongs to that keen, yet short-sighted class, who consider suspicion of all whose honesty is not proved as a sign of wisdom. The practical qualities of a man are held in great respect, but the want of faith in strangers and untried modes of action extends itself even to the manner in which the virtues are regarded. And if they produce no immediate and tangible results, they are rather put aside as unfit for this busy, striving world, especially if they are more of a passive than an active character. The affections are strong, and their foundations lie deep, but they are not, such affections seldom are, wide-spreading, nor do they show themselves on the surface. Indeed, there is little display of any of the amenities of life among this wild, rough population. Their cost is curt, their accent and tone of speech blunt and harsh. Something of this may, probably, be attributed to the freedom of mountain air and of isolated hillside life. Something be derived from their rough Norse ancestry. They have a quick perception of character, and a keen sense of humor. The dwellers among them must be prepared for certain uncomplimentary, though most likely true, observations pithily expressed. Their feelings are not easily roused, but their duration is lasting. Hence there is much close friendship and faithful service, and for a correct exemplification of the form in which the latter frequently appears, I need only refer the reader of Wuthering Heights to the character of Joseph. From the same cause come also enduring grudges, in some cases amounting to hatred which occasionally has been bequeathed from generation to generation. I remember Miss Bronte once telling me that it was a saying round about Haworth, 
keep a stone in thy pocket seven year, turn it, and keep it seven years longer, that it may be ever ready to thine hands when thine enemy draws near. The West Riding men are sleuth-hounds in pursuit of money. Miss Bronte related to my husband a curious instance illustrated of this eager desire for riches. A man that she knew, who was a small manufacturer, had engaged in many local speculations, which had always turned out well, and thereby rendered him a person of some wealth. He was rather past middle age when he bethought himself of insuring his life, and he had only just taken out his policy when he fell ill of an acute disease, which was certain to end fatally in a very few days. The doctor, half-hesitatingly, revealed to him his hopeless state. "'By Jingo!' cried he, rousing up at once into the old energy. "'I shall do the insurance company. I always was a lucky fellow.' These men are keen and shrewd, faithful and persevering in following out a good purpose, fell in tracking an evil one. They are not emotional, they are not easily made into either friends or enemies, but once lovers or haters it is difficult to change their feeling. They are a powerful race both in mind and body, both for good and for evil. The woolen manufacturer was introduced into this district in the days of Edward Third. It is traditionally said that a colony of Flemings came over and settled in the West Riding to teach the inhabitants what to do with their wool. In the mixture of agricultural with manufacturing labor that ensued and prevailed in the West Riding up to a very recent period, sounds pleasant enough at this distance of time when the classical impression is left and the details forgotten, or only brought to light by those who explore the few remote parts of England where the custom still lingers. The idea of the mistress and her maidens spinning at the great wheels while the master was abroad ploughing his fields, or seeing after his flocks on the purple moors, is very poetical to look back upon. But when such life actually touches on our own days, and we can hear particulars from the lips of those now living, there come out details of coarseness, of the uncouthness, of the rustic mingled with the sharpness of the tradesmen, of irregularity and fierce lawlessness, that rather mar the vision of pastoral innocence and simplicity. Still, as it is the exceptional and exaggerated characteristics of any period that leave the most vivid memory behind them, it would be wrong, and in my opinion faithless, to conclude that such and such forms of society and modes of living were not best for the period when they prevailed, although the abuses they may have led into, and the gradual progress of the world, have made it well that such ways and manners should pass away for ever, and as preposterous to attempt to return to them as it would be for a man to return to the close of his childhood. The patent granted to Alderman Cockane, and the further restrictions imposed by James I, on the export of undyed woolen cloths, met by a prohibition on the part of the states of Holland of the import of English dyed cloths, injured the trade of the West Riding manufacturers considerably. Their independence of character, their dislike of authority, and their strong powers of thought predisposed them to rebellion against the religious dictation of such men as Laud and the arbitrary rule of the Stuarts, and the injury done by James and Charles to the trade by which they gained their bread, made the great majority of them commonwealth men. 
I shall have occasion afterwards to give one or two instances of the warm feelings and extensive knowledge on subjects of both home and foreign politics existing at the present day in the villages lying west and east of the mountainous ridge that separates Yorkshire and Lancashire, the inhabitants of which are of the same race and possess the same quality of character. The descendants of many who served under Cromwell at Dunbar live on the same lands as their ancestors occupied then, and perhaps there is no part of England where the traditional and fond recollections of the Commonwealth have lingered so long as in that inhabited by the one manufacturing population of the West Riding, who had their restrictions taken off their trade by the Protector's admirable commercial policy. I have it on good authority that, not thirty years ago, the phrase, in Oliver's days, was in common use to denote a time of unusual prosperity. The class of Christian names, prevalent in a district, is one indication of the direction in which its tide of hero-worship sets. Grave enthusiasts, in politics or religion, perceive not the ludicrous side of those which they give to their children. And some are to be found, still in their infancy, not a dozen miles from Haworth, that will have to go through life as Lamartine, Kossuth, and Dembinsky. And so there is a testimony to what I have said, of the traditional feeling of the district, in the fact that the Old Testament names in general use among the Puritans are yet the prevalent appellations in most Yorkshire families of middle or humble rank, whatever their religious persuasion may be. There are numerous records, too, that show the kindly way in which the ejected ministers were received by their gentry, as well as by the poorer part of the inhabitants, during the persecuting days of Charles the Second. These little facts all testify to the old hereditary spirit of independence, ready ever to resist authority which was conceived to be unjustly exercised, that distinguishes the people of the West Riding to the present day. The parish of Halifax touches that of Bradford, in which the chapelry of Haworth is included, and the nature of the grounds in the two parishes is much of the same wild and hilly description. The abundance of coal, and the number of mountain streams in the district make it highly favorable to manufactures, and accordingly, as I stated, the inhabitants have for centuries been engaged in making cloth, as well as in agricultural pursuits. But the intercourse of trade failed, for a long time, to bring amenity and civilization into these outlying hamlets, or widely scattered dwellings. Mr. Hunter, in his Life of Oliver Haywood, quotes a sentence out of a memorial of one James Rither, living in the reign of Elizabeth, which is partially true to this day. They have no superior to court, no civilities to practice, a sour and sturdy humor is the consequence, so that a stranger is shocked by a tone of defiance in every voice, and an air of fierceness in every countenance. Even now a stranger can hardly ask a question without receiving some crusty reply, if, indeed, he receives any at all. Sometimes the sour rudeness amounts to positive insult. Yet, if the foreigner takes all this churlishness good-humouredly, or as a matter of course, and makes any good claim upon their latent kindliness and hospitality, they are faithful and generous, and thoroughly to be relied upon. 
as a slight illustration of the roughness that pervades all classes in these out-of-the-way villages, I may relate a little adventure which happened to my husband and myself three years ago at Addingham. From Penagent to Pendle Hill, from Linton to Long Addingham, and all that Craven Coast did tell, etc., one of the places that sent forth its fighting men to the famous old battle of Flodden Fields, and a village not many miles from Haworth. We were driving along the street, when one of those ne'er-do-well lads who seemed to have a kind of magnetic power for misfortunes, having dumped into the stream that runs through the place, just where all the broken glass and bottles are thrown, staggered naked and merely covered with blood into a cottage before us. Besides receiving another bad cut in the arm, he had completely laid open the artery, and was in a fair way of bleeding to death, which one of his relations comforted him by saying would be likely to save a deal of trouble. When my husband had checked the effusion of blood with a strap that one of the bystanders unbuckled from his leg, he asked if a surgeon had been sent for. Yoy was the answer, but we dinna think he'll come. Why not? He's owed. You seen an asthmatic, and it's uphill. My husband, taking a boy for his guide, drove as fast as he could to the surgeon's house, which was about three-quarters of a mile off, and met the aunt of the wounded lad leaving it. "'Is he coming?' inquired my husband. "'Well, he didn't say he wouldn't have come. "'But tell him the lad may bleed to death.' "'I did. "'And what did he say?' Why only, D.N. him, what do I care? It ended, however, in his sending one of his sons, who, though not brought up to the surgering trade, was able to do what was necessary in the way of bandages and plasters. The excuse made for the surgeon was that he was near eighty and getting a bit doited, and he had a matter of twenty children. Among the most unmoved of the onlookers, was the brother of the boy so badly hurt, and while he was lying in a pool of blood on the flag-floor and crying out how much his arm was watching, his stoical relation stood coolly smoking his bit of black pipe, and uttered not a single word of either sympathy or sorrow. Forest customs, existing in the fringes of dark wood, which clothed the declivity of the hills on either side, tended to brutalize the population until the middle of the seventeenth century. Execution, by beheading, was performed in a summary way upon either men or women who were guilty of but very slight crimes, and a dogged, yet in some cases fine, indifference to human life was thus generated. The roads were so notoriously bad, even up to the last thirty years, that there was little communication between one village and another. If the produce of industry could be conveyed at stated times to the cloth market of the district, it was all that could be done, and in lonely houses on the distant hillside, or by the small magnets of secluded hamlets, crimes might be committed almost unknown. Certainly, without any great uprising of popular indignation calculated to bring down the strong arm of the law, it must be remembered that in those days there was no rural constabulary and the few magistrates left to themselves, and generally related to one another, were most of them inclined to tolerate eccentricity, and to wink at faults too much like their own. 
Men hardly past middle life talk of the days of their youth, spent in this part of the country, when, during the winter months, they rode up to the saddle girths in mud. When absolute business was the only reason for stirring beyond the precincts of home, and when the business was conducted under a pressure of difficulties which they themselves, borne along to Bradford Market in a swift, first-class carriage, can hardly believe to have been possible. For instance, one one manufacturer says, not five-and-twenty years ago, he had to rise betimes, to set off on a winter's morning, in order to be at Bradford with the great wagon-load of goods manufactured by his father. This load was packed overnight, but in the morning there was a great gathering round it, and flashing of lanterns, and examination of horses' feet, before the ponderous wagon got under way, and then someone had to go groping here and there, on hands and knees, and always sounding with a staff down the long, steep, slippery brow, to find where the horses might tread safely, until they reached the comparative easy-going of the deep-rutted main road. People went on horseback over the upland moors, following the tracks of the pack-horses that carried the parcels, baggage, or goods from one town to another, between which there did not happen to be a highway. But in winter all such communication was impossible, by reason of the snow, which lay long and late on the bleak high grounds. I have known people who, travelling by the mail-coach over Blackstone Edge, had been snowed up for a week or ten days at the little inn near the summit, and obliged to spend both Christmas and New Year's Day there, till the store of provisions, laid in for the use of the landlord and his family, falling short before the inroads of the unexpected visitors, they had recourse to the turkeys, geese, and Yorkshire pies with which the coach was laid in. And even these were beginning to fail, when a fortunate thaw released them from their prison. Isolated as the hill villages may be, they are in the world, compared with the loneliness of the grey ancestral houses to be seen here and there in the dense hollows of the moors. These dwellings are not large, yet they are solid and roomy enough for the accommodation of those who live in them, and to whom the surrounding estates belong. The land has often been held by one family since the days of the Tudors. The owners are, in fact, the remains of the old yeomanry, small squires, who are rapidly becoming extinct as a class, from one of two causes. Either the professor falls into idle, drinking habits, and so is obliged eventually to sell his property, or he finds, if more shrewd and adventurous, that the beck, running down the mountainside, or the minerals beneath his feet, can be turned into a new source of wealth, and leaving the old plodding life of a landowner with small capital, he turns manufacturer, or digs for coal, or quarries for stone. Still there are those remaining of this class, dwellers in lonely houses far from the upland districts, even at the present day, who sufficiently indicate what strange eccentricity, what wild strength of will, nay, even what unnatural power of crime, was fostered by a mode of living in which a man seldom met his fellows, and where public opinion was only a distant and inarticulate echo of some clearer voice surrounding beyond the sweeping horizon. A solitary life cherishes more fancies until they become manias and the powerful Yorkshire character, which was scarcely tamed into subjection by all the contact it met with in busy town or crowded marts, has before now broken out into strange willfulness in the remoter districts. 
a singular account was recently given me of a landowner, living, it is true, on the Lancashire side of the hills, but of the same blood and nature as the dwellers on the other, who was supposed to be in the receipt of seven or eight hundred a year, and whose house bore marks of handsome antiquity, as if his forefathers had been for a long time people of consideration. My informant was struck with the appearance of the place, and proposed to the countryman, who was accompanying him, to go up to it, and take a nearer inspection. The reply was, "'You'd better not. He'd threep you down on the loan. He's let fly at some folks' legs, and let shot lodge in em afore now, for going too near to his house.' and finding, on closer inquiry, that such was really the inhospitable custom of this moorland squire, the gentleman gave up his purpose. I believe that the savage yeoman is still living. Another squire, of more distinguished family and larger property, one is thence led to imagine of better education, but that does not always follow, died in his house, not many miles from Haworth, only a few years ago. His great amusement and occupation had been cock-fighting. When he was confined to his chamber, with what he knew would be his last illness, he had his cocks brought up there, and watched the bloody battle from his bed. As his mortal disease increased, and it became impossible for him to turn so as to follow the combat, he had looking-glasses arranged in such a manner, around and above him, as he lay, that he could still see the cocks fighting and in this manner he died. These are merely instances of eccentricity compared to the tales of positive violence and crime that have occurred in these isolated dwellings, which still linger in the memories of some of the old people of the district, and some of which were doubtless familiar to the authors of Wuthering Heights and the Tenant of Wildfell Hall. The amusements of the lower classes could hardly be more humane than those of the wealthy and better educated. The gentleman, who has kindly furnished me with some of the particulars I have given, remembers the bull-baitings at Rodale, not thirty years ago. The bull was fastened by a chain or rope to a post in the river. To increase the amount of water, as well as to give their work-people the opportunity of savage delight, the masters were accustomed to stop their mills on the day when the sport took place. The bull would sometimes wheel suddenly round, so that the rope by which he was fastened swept those who had been careless enough to come within its range down into the water. And the good people of Rodale had the excitement of seeing one or two of their neighbors drowned, as well as of witnessing the bull baited, and the dogs torn and tossed. The people of Haworth were not less strong and full of character than their neighbors on either side of the hills. The village lies embedded in the moors, between the two countries, on the old road between Kiley and Colne. About the middle of the last century it became famous in the religious world as the scene of the ministrations of the Rev. William Grimshaw, curate of Haworth for twenty years. Before this time it is probable that the curates were of the same order as one Mr. Nichols, a Yorkshire clergyman, in the days immediately succeeding the Reformation, who was much addicted to drinking and company-keeping, and used to say to his companions, You must not heed me but when I am got three feet above the earth. That was, into the pulpit. 
Mr. Grimshaw's life was written by Newton, Cowper's friends, and from it may be gathered some curious particulars of the manner in which a rough population were swayed and governed by a man of deep convictions, and strong earnestness of purpose. It seems that he had not been in any way remarkable for religious zeal, though he had led a moral life, and been conscientious in fulfilling his parochial duties, until a certain Sunday in September 1744, when the servant, rising at five, found her master already engaged in prayer. She stated that, after remaining in his chamber for some time, he went to engage in religious exercises in the house of a parishioner, then home again to pray, thence, still fasting, to the church, where, as he was reading the second lesson, he fell down, and on his partial recovery, had to be led from the church. As he went out, he spoke to the congregation, and told them not to disperse, as he had something to say to them, and would return presently. He was taken to the clerk's house, and again became insensible. His servant rubbed him, to restore the circulation, and when he was brought to himself, he seemed in a great rapture, and the first words he uttered were, I have had a glorious vision from the third heaven. He did not say what he had seen, but returned into the church, and began the service again, at two in the afternoon, and went on until seven. End of section two. Recording by Katie Riley. March 2009.